everybody, it's Ben Reiser, Director of Operations for the Wisconsin Film Festival. I'm also the head of the Wisconsin Zone Programming Committee for this year, and I am thrilled and almost amazed that it's actually happening. <laughs> I'm getting to talk to Bernard Friedman, the Golden Badger Award-winning director of the feature-length documentary N of One. And I'll say right off the bat, this is meant as a post-screening Q&A, so if you haven't seen N of One, I would hit the stop button on whatever device you're listening to this on, because N of One, as we'll talk about in a minute, is a movie full of twists and turns, and I wouldn't want to spoil any of those twists and turns for you as a viewer, so do yourself a favor and don't listen to this conversation until after you've seen the movie, at which point you'll probably be dying to listen to this conversation. So, um... Hi, Bernard. Hi, Ben. So nice to be here. It's been a I was thinking, and this is really, my first question is going to be long-winded, but it's, uh, I think hopefully it'll get to a point and be a good first question. But I was thinking about how long my journey with this film has been, and then thinking how much longer your journey with this film has been. I can't even... And, and this is really what I want to ask you about. But I, I watched the film today for the first time, really, since the first time I saw it, which was in April of 2019. Huh. I was at um, J.J. Murphy's house. And J.J. Murphy is the sort of common denominator between uh, me and you and the festival and this film. Um, a longtime professor of film studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I believe you were a student of his at some point. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Some point, indeed. It was a long time ago. <laughs> I'm, I've, I've been a badger, now a golden badger, for a, quite a long time. Um, yeah. 19, I was one of his first students, honestly. Yeah. So I, I was at his house for a post-screening soiree. He was retiring from the UW, okay. and I think he had screened at the UW Cinematheque Abel Ferrara's movie Dangerous Game with um, uh, Madonna. Um, I don't know why that was the one he wanted to show. Uh, it was It's part of a book that he had written uh, that year. Um, and he'd given a lecture after the screening and then invited some people back to his house. And he and I started talking. We were drinking. And he started telling me about this movie called N of One that he had just seen. And he, I, my recollection of what he said about it was it was the craziest documentary he'd ever seen that he was watching this movie and he fell off his couch at regular intervals <laughs> watching this movie. And it was a very intriguing piece. And he wanted me to watch it. He's, I'm very tantalized by the idea of having J.J. fall off the couch by my, my, any agency of mine. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's fun to picture in your mind's eye. Um, and he wanted me to watch this movie. He sent me an email with a screener link. Um, and so I, after I watched the movie again today, I was like, I need, I wish I could remember exactly what my reaction to it at first was because watching it again today, it's so different seeing this movie a second time um, than it is the first time you go through it. And so I did find this, this um, email conversation and JJ said, hey, Ben, glad you guys could stop by last night. Here's that doc feature I told you about. Let me know if you have any problems getting it to work. I'd be really curious to hear your reaction. And then I wrote to him an hour later. <laughs> and I said, I'm a half an hour in. 
and I already want to show it to everyone I know, run it at Cinematheque or the Wisconsin Film Festival. What's the story with this thing? And, uh, and he said, the story is really quite fascinating, but you really have to watch the whole film. And I said, of course, I just need to take a little break. I've got some work to do today. So, so then he wrote and he said, hey, did you ever, he wrote me the next day and he said, did you ever finish it? Or are you busy with other things? And I said to him, I just finished it last night. Man, what a movie. It had me thinking about structure and focus the whole way through. I found myself second-guessing the filmmaking choices throughout, only to be proven wrong over and over and over again. I really wish I'd seen it in time to get into this year's festival. Uh, I see it played St. Louis. What else do you know about its state of distribution? And so we had a long conversation after that. I think he called, you know, JJ doesn't like to email that much. He loves to to get you on the phone and talk for hours. And so we did talk for hours about N of One. Mm And um, eventually I got, I remembered it, like, you know, that was in April. And so we opened up our submissions for the 2020 festival in September of 2019. And I remembered it and I said, hey, I really, I want to get this thing submitted to the Wisconsin Zone and, and get it shown. And so we did. And then, of course, the festival wound up getting canceled at the last minute because of uh, the COVID pandemic. Um. But so you've spent, as I said, exponentially longer with this project, with this story, with this film. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you were, are able to cast your mind back to when you first got involved uh, and talk about what you were thinking and what you were planning and how this all started and when it all started. Sure. So I was a cancer patient. And my way into the film began with a phone call from Howard, who I knew. Howard, the uh, catalyst of the, of the story and catalyst of my involvement. Um, I had actually met him in a clinic where he was an advocate for someone else. And he's, you know, very charming and very uh, provocative. And uh, I, we kept that friendship. And he called me and he said, there's a woman who is struggling with fibrolamellar, which I'd become familiar with because of, if you recall the character Tal in the film, he and I had become friends and we'd met in the same clinic. Anyway, um, he said, this woman, um, I have this idea for her and I think, you know, I'm going to, I can pull together a team for her if I had enough resources for it. So would you be interested in making a short film to help her raise money for it? And I said, um, sure, be happy to. And I actually, what I, what I did, I, I started making the short film and it became really obvious that there were all these very compelling, emotional moving parts parts. Uh, her family in particular were, were so involved and very um, comfortable with a, ca- with a similar cancer patient like myself, you know, being around and being involved. So the access was so unique that, and they encouraged it, that it began, it began to be clear that there was a, a, a possibly a, a, a feature in this. And Katie who was 
of course, at the time, very hopeful about the treatment, liked the idea of documenting it. She liked the idea of it, which is in keeping with the overall attitude that she had towards the the Odyssey, which was, I'm doing this for myself and I'm doing this for everyone else. So I was, I was not, uh, I had never directed a feature before. Um, so I immediately <laughs> deferred it to a, a friend of mine, actually, Michael Apted. Um, the, 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 you know, the biggest, <laughs> just a friend, yeah, of, friend of mine, the biggest, uh, Hey Mike, what you doing? Well, you you are you in between fifty six ups right now? Can you jump in I, and do this thing? Well, by coincidence, I knew him, and I thought, oh, he's 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 kind of slowed down, and he would he might like this project. Um, but he actually very generously said, "No, you could do this. You do this." So he said, "Think, you know, reflect on your own personal story because that will be your way in." And he was right about that. So that was the origin, and that was that was 2000 and, uh, 2012, the very beginning of 2012. Wow. And you know, then everything happened in that year. Um, so things, the idea of, I should add that the, the idea of really finding even someone else to to step in would have missed so much to get them up to speed and, and rolling anyway. Right. And, you know, so um, the film, the film starts in India and then the next maybe 55 minutes yeah. are, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, a flash. Yeah. Right. And then the film sort of circles back around to, to them arriving in India, yeah. uh, which is where the film starts. And it's, I mean, I guess I don't even know where to start, but I mean, there, it seems to me like there, well, one thing I want to say is it seems to me that there must have been this nearly constant, not a battle, but like weighing um, things that were in the best interest uh, of the film and, and, and what was important for you as a filmmaker to capture, but also at the same time becoming part of yeah. these people's lives. Yeah. And um, what was that like? I mean, if, you know, it certainly feels like you were there for so much of this amazing story. Yeah. And I can't even begin to imagine the, the sort of emotional toll it took on you and, but everyone involved and then at a certain point, I mean, it... well, I, I would I would say uh, obviously there's a, it's a unique and, and and very intense intimacy because someone's life is on the line, and um, there's so much uncertainty, um, and we're just dealing with a family, a very loving family that that is initially deer in the headlights and then, you know, rising to the occasion. Um, I, I would, I would say that things were predicated on helping Katie. So mm -hmm. they saw my work as helping her. Um, 
you know, bearing witness, most of all, um, and also um, um, so, uh, um, amplifying the the journey that she was on for others in her Fibrilla Meller community. Yeah. Here's the, it feels like this, there's a, there's a catch 22 uh, of this film yeah. and putting it together and telling this story and telling it in the way that it needs to be told yeah. in the way that it makes sense to be told to make it a compelling yeah. film. Um, and I, and I, and I tried to figure it out today and I feel like some of it is this, that there are these cinematic storytelling conventions yes. that tell us as an audience that when people start talking about the possibility of a bad outcome or possible risks or downsides or things in, in most films and documentaries and certainly in narrative fiction films, those, if, if people are talking about some risks, those risks don't usually come to pass. I yeah. mean, the, the worst doesn't usually happen. And the opposite is true too. There are all these heist films where, yeah. um, where the where the where the where the thugs or the you know the, the thieves are are planning the perfect heist and of course something always goes right. wrong so they sort of map out how it's gonna happen right. and it doesn't actually happen that yeah. way. So in this documentary, even though watching it a second time and a third time, you can see all along the way that there are these clear warning signs that hey there are some serious risks involved. Yeah. This is all very experimental. Yeah. This is all. This is all unknown. Still, as a as a as a film going audience who's ever seen uh, films before, you're sort of it's it, you still can't help but but feel like we're getting set up for some success. Yeah. Uh, that you know that this film is going to tell this this story of and 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 in a certain way, this is a success. I mean, in in, in the in the larger yeah. scheme of medical innovations this needed to happen. And you also seems to me, you have to put all that stuff in the film um, just so that the audience is aware, even in retrospect, that the participants are entering into all of this with their eyes wide open, or at least as much as possible, because it also feels like I've been at doctor appointments and I've, I've never had like a serious medical illness like cancer or something like that. But, you know, anytime I've gone in for a procedure, they tell you these are the risks. And, you know, there's this. And, you know, for me, it always sort of goes in one ear and out the other. It's like, yes, this is what I am. I know you have to legally tell me that this is that and I have to make this choice. But it's always like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's not going to happen to me. But in this film, you know, everyone's uh, greatest fears do happen. and, And Katie does not make it through yeah uh to the end and uh, you know i'd love to hear sort of what um what your what your expectations as a as a person and as a filmmaker and as a cancer survivor what they were going through this process with her and then is it was it as um shocking devastating surprising to you in real life as it was, as it is for us as an audience. It was shocking. It was shocking because I had just left her and she, you know, there is some, you know, sleight of hand in the film in as much as I can edit out those times that, that uh, Katie looked weak 
and and vulnerable and frail um but by and large considering how sick she really was and and that was particularly revealed after the surgery um mm -hmm. she was she was pretty vibrant and articulate and present and in it and so I, I had, and everyone had every reason to believe that the sort of mechanical part of the, of the journey, the, 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 you know, the liver transplant would work and buy her lots of time. And we'll see if the immune therapy part of it, which was truly quite novel, then we're now, you know, uh, nine years later, um, and immune therapy is now almost part of standard of care uh, in, in, in widely in a lot of cancer therapy. But then it was, you know, we had, we had to go to India to, to, to yeah. with a brave, you know, a brave, you know, internationally renowned surgeon to be able to, to take these ex experiments and risks. In any case, um, it was shocking. And I'll just reiterate the cliche that you enter into making the documentary and you just don't know where it's going to take you. Um, and I think everyone who I filmed, like Dr. Slavin telling Katie's mother, um, you know, this is a very badly beaten body. Um, so, you know, we're going to take a chance here, but she's don't, we have to remember that she's been through a lot. He was absolutely right in a way that, an outsider or a, or, a, or a layman like myself or our audience generally would just assume that he's being polite or he's being um, reasonable. But mm -hmm. it was shocking. It was shocking because it was a, like a fireball coming down that you could have seen if it, it only in retrospect. And, um, it had very little to do with the actual treatment, the actual experimental treatment. So the, again, the, the, you know, the, the necrosis of a part of the liver that, you know, fed it blood to really flourish, which was a damage that she probably was living with, with that was un, unrecognized uh, from earlier kind of bollocked up treatment back in Alabama where they can have excellent treatment. I don't mean Alabama specifically, but she didn't get, she didn't get the best care initially. So, I mean, the nature of this story that you were telling and that you were capturing yeah. on the ground as it was happening, I mean, there was there, you, you couldn't have known exactly how it was going to end, where the end of your story was going to right. land. But I'm wondering how much work had you done in your head or even, you know, actual work, editing work, had you done to, to sort of structure the film and get a sense of wh what you had, what you still were hoping to capture, where you were hoping to sort of wrap things up when she died? Where were you other than the filming? Yeah. Had you done any editorial sort of structuring? And yeah, No, I had not, but I think thematically it suddenly changed. Well, I would just say that it was originally and always was about conviction 
it's a, it's a story about convictions, about these the way these two people enable each other around a very needed conviction to to try something dangerous and promising. You know, in where she had no other, she she wasn't offered any other hope, um, and um, it, that was what I was following uh, up up until her her death, and then it, this the 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 story kind of jumps in a way carried a little bit at arm's length by Howard. So the conviction that he had that inspired her, it continues on. It needs to be pressed on with, you know, it's Howard really has this dark night of the soul after she dies and, and disappeared to me. And in his life, he kind of shut down for a while. And then he, you know, he came back at it, which was a recognition in him that he, he was right to have the conviction that this was a valuable thing to pursue and that it had promise more widely than beyond just Katie. And he even, you know, was a bit inspired by her own perseverance. So the, that theme continued. Mm -hmm. But in a way, the theme, the additional theme of how innovation you know, persists amidst um, entropy and uh, failure, and uh, you know th that that's the um, part of the reason why it was important to have the uh, liver transplant history offshoot, because you you really see that that it's in, in, innovation almost inherently seems to. Uh, be a, 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 a journey of slaughter that you you know it goes from this to this to this to always sort of one step up two steps back and then you know there then then it lives and then it sticks and then it, it becomes legitimized by a place like Johns Hopkins right yeah so that um, so that that's the new theme that her her death solidified or, or made necessary. But, but, can, but um, what was it, what was that period like after she died? I mean, there must have been, I'm assuming you, 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 you paused in some, I mean, yeah. so you, you, it sounds like you had to pause a little bit because Howard paused yeah. and stepped away. And I would, I, I would have to imagine that you must have felt, Similarly, for a yeah. while, I, how long was it that you sort of, and 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 how and how much did you question whether you even could continue and wanted to make this film that was now that you now had all these hours and hours of footage for? Yeah, how hard was it to get back to it? Um, well, I'd like to believe that I was also heroic, but I don't think that that was what was compelling me. At a certain point, I felt very duty bound to tell Katie Hollingsworth's story and to bring to light this thing that had happened in India. You know, it hadn't quite solidified the notion of tracking innovation itself, but I, but I did believe that something important had happened and that I had 
I was pretty sure a lot of it was in the footage that I'd gotten, and I and I was I yearned to to realize it. I I mean I think, um, good a good six months of 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 ruminating on it and also absorbing. You know I have to say that be, again because she was so vibrant, and because we kind of had so much invested in the notion that she was going to that there was a just a win-win about her having a, a, a liver transplant altogether um that that right. the curveball of her dying um was paralyzing for a while um really uh one one of the one of the truly admirable things that Howard did was he made this thing happen where there was all kinds of inhibitions um, in, in the medical community to take a chance about simply a, a liver transplant um, on somebody who had metastatic disease, which would invariably recur in the liver. Um, there's, there's a, one could go pretty far into the medical ethics issues around this story. And uh, I, I touched on it a bit, but it's quite a complicated thing. And it actually, if you think about Dr. Rella stepping out of protocol, that was his big uh, courage, I think. As a filmmaker, I, I imagine at some point, probably fairly early on and you did know Howard before this but you must have had to pinch yourself at times with the sort of abundance of fantastic magnetic screen personalities that you had to work with I mean not only Howard who that I remember that first time where I kept arguing with the with the movie as I was watching, I was like, give me more Howard. Well, Howard needs his own movie. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Katie's great, but I need to see more Howard. Like this guy, I, I've never seen anything like him on screen. And I, and I just want to spend as much time with him as I can. Um, yeah. but is it, but it isn't just Howard because it's Katie and it's yeah. her whole family and it's, uh, Slavin and it's, uh, Rella. They're all, um, I would imagine a, a dream, like a dream cast, you know, mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so, um, and, uh, you know, and again, uh, as you talk about, there's always sleight of hand, you're always shaping the material in ways that the audience never sees and telling the story, the most compelling story that you can figure out to tell. Uh, but how, how easy or difficult was it with, with all these characters and all the footage that you must've had to work with? Uh, well, particularly as a first-time director, you just want to put your arms around everything, and it, mm-hmm. it was it was a battle royal between me and a much more prudent editor, Matthew Mall, who was able to say these are the important, emotionally important things, and these you have to l- live with. Obviously, the the old adage you're, you're killing babies, right? The uh, the, the, that awful phrase that is just so painfully viscerally accurate. Um, there's a lot about Howard. There ought to be a movie that there's stuff with There's some Howard stuff that's on the cutting room oh, floor. Yeah, plenty, especially when he was getting angry yeah. at me. 
Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I know there is that. I know there is that that sort of. Um, I don't know what it is, but that that is the saying that you know your film is done when you cut your favorite film out of the scene. Uh, cut your favorite scene out of the film. Yeah. Is that? Can you think of a of a scene that you ended up pulling that you're like, yeah, that was my, that was the one. There's a scene where Howard and Slavin both. Howard is is actually a rabbi. Um, I'm not sure if it's, it's mm-hmm. clear in the film. He's a rabbi, and he he's very driven. He's actually thinks an awful lot about what it is to be um, philanthropic. What is it? Why why do people do what they do? And he feels no. I'm really everybody is selfish, and I'm really selfish in my intent here, and which is unfair to himself. But in any case, there's a there's a, a scene which is not in the film that happened where Slavin, who is this very pragmatic, not religious Israeli, the two of them have a philosophical discussion of what they've done here. Right? And and and, and Slavin is teasing uh, Howard about it. It's actually Shabbat. You forgot it's Shabbat, and you, you, you've been doing all of these things that you're not supposed to do. Um, and what Slavin is doing is provoking him to recognize that what Howard loves and what Howard is doing is thinking and making his and and helping make those ideas come alive, and that his uh, religious identity was not really part of that issue. And so like Slavin saying, you're actually a scientist, basically. And that's a scene, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful moment that happened that uh, I, I wish that I, you could almost make a, you know, like a My Dinner with Andre scene like that, a short film, which I, if I could figure out the, co- the way to gather the context around it, I would do that. Well, I mean, uh, uh, fans of the film like myself can always dream of a of a Blu-ray release at some point that has got all all kinds of deleted footage and, and bonus, <laughs> thank you, bonus thank features. you, Ben. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, I wanna I wanna just go through a few things in the film that I um, that struck me this time, and I scribbled notes about while I was watching it today. I love the fact that basically the first two sort of subtitles in the film, even though people are speaking English, but it's hard to hear. Uh, I think the first one is quit fucking with it. And then that's followed closely by Jesus loves you. And I think <laughs> that, that's a, that's a nice yeah. um, juxtaposition of those two uh, lines. Yeah. Um, and I also was struck this time. Uh, and I don't know, if you if it strikes you this way or, or at all, but you know we first see India, and I think a lot of um, Americans have these preconceived notions about India and, and the state of poverty, um, and all of these uh, people that we see on the streets uh, who are you know clearly of a lower economic uh, caste, I guess they say in India. Uh-huh. Uh, but we go from India to Panama City, Florida, and and that sort of outdoor uh, concert barbecue, and it strikes me that that the scene there in Panama City, Florida, isn't all that much removed or different than what we're seeing in India. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Thank you for for recognizing that. Um, 
Well, it was it was necessary to express the feeling of otherness that the family had, that the, that Jacob particularly and Katie particularly had, um, because it had a lot to do with their um, confidence about the choice that they made of going there. I, mm-hmm. You know, quickly the the uneven development of India uh, recedes when you're when you when you're in the hospital because the hospital was pretty um, uh, advanced, a very advanced hospital. Um, people from actually all over Asia come to that hospital. Um, uh, and it's true that the Panama City world is, uh, I mean, what's the, the kind of crass uh, stereotype, the redneck Riviera. It's, you know, the, 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 um, that the family was not particularly a, uh, they weren't a wealthy family. They weren't a poor family. They were, they were, you know, middle-class family that uh, had, you know, a lovely home, but it, you know, it was kind of um, not, uh, it's not. It wasn't a. It wasn't. It wasn't a northerner stereotype of uh, the redneck South at all, at all. It was, you know, just like um, like suburban Panama City. Yeah, but I mean, I'm thinking we do see there's an elderly elderly woman in like a, a sort of a picnic chair who's dressed head to toe yeah. in like red, white, and yeah. blue stuff, and I feel like. You know, you change the colors on then the ensemble and plop her down in the middle of the streets of India. And it's like, I think you wouldn't necessarily recognize her as being somebody from a different, a different land. Yeah. Well, I hope in a way that uh, that's a universalizing feeling. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, ironically, you know, um, Chennai is, is a relatively wealthy city and a very developing, actively developing city. And it, was, it wasn't the American stereotype of India, which was that it was packed with people. It really wasn't. There were, you know, there were animals, a lot of animals on the road and, that you had to dodge. But it, it, it had a, and maybe this is true of India in its larger cities in general, that India is, is coming of age and, you know, all those doctors, for example, they're all European trained physicians that are leading, leading India. I want to talk a little bit about the music yeah. in the film. It's, and it doesn't seem like they're, that, that different characters have actual sort of themes. Uh, although I haven't, I no. didn't think, I didn't listen to it closely enough, but I was struck. Uh, we hear, we hear some, we hear a score uh, in the first maybe five or ten minutes of the yeah. film, um, and then we then we meet Howard, and Howard gets this intro music that is nothing like what we've heard up until that point. It's yeah. this classical right. uh, piano-based music that almost feels like it might be even diegetic. Like you almost get the sense maybe this is what Howard listens to while he's answering the phone in his. Huh 
I guess those are his offices. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little hard to yeah. tell where he's hanging out there at the beginning with all those. Yeah, well, he's he's hanging out in his offices, but I happened to catch him as he was clearing out of his offices. And as I mentioned before, <laughs> there's a few times when he really lost his temper with me because he knew Phil full well that I was capturing him in this giant chaotic mess. And he felt very embarrassed about it. Anyway, addressing your, your point about the music, you got it exactly, Ben. That that music is is how Howard is a classical music lover, and he loves that piece. And he is playing classical piano all the time. And um, I thought of it as somewhat part of his character. It wasn't. It was a little. I had to be careful to not come off patronizing of him or here. Yeah. Right. And it's not like it's, it's not like it's, you know, and I feel like maybe if you had gone with like klezmer music or something, it would have been over the oh, top, yeah. you know, to sort of accent his Jewishness yeah. or something, but it doesn't. And I think it's actually brilliant. I think it really <laughs> helps. I think it really helps you as the, as a viewer understand him in, in within 10 seconds of seeing him I, you know i try to picture that scene without that music and i feel like we we wouldn't learn as much about howard as quickly as we do without that score so it's really and i i, I thought i saw in the end credits that there may be a few different yeah. people that you credit with with music and maybe talk about those different people or what they contributed or how you came to the different elements of the score right um circle of sound were was a composing duo that I had worked with before on a short film. Um, two guys that I just, they're lovely, very intuitive um, South Americans, um, new to Los Angeles and trying to, to break into the music industry. And I had a wonderful exper experience with them, but they had limits, truthfully, on an end-to-end -end creation of a score of a feature they had only worked in short film and primarily in commercials so i ended up later recognizing that i had gaps um it, like emotional gaps in the film that i that i needed um i need i needed to refer to someone else and um i happen to have a a, a buddy um, who is a very accomplished uh, uh, film film composer, and, and he kind of helped me. Um, and but the you know nevertheless the the cir circle of sound, which is uh, these these two wonderful composers together, they're they're the primary composers of the film, but. If there's anything to be learned in it, aside from the foibles of the first-time director, it's that, um, in particularly in documentary, um, you don't you don't know the road you're going down, and the the right music for it um, is learned along the way, and. And, 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 and you, and you, you begin to see that I need this and I need this. And you don't necessarily have that resource when you start out. Yeah. I, you know, as somebody who, who gets to watch, uh, over a hundred 
films every year that are submitted by, you know, younger filmmakers or filmmakers or hobby filmmakers. It's amazing to me how many films wind up either sinking or swimming based on their yeah. their score. And, you know, how many people dig dig through these royalty-free music beds that are available and use them and then how many times as a as a programming committee we'll hear that same music in like 40 yeah. documentaries in a, in, a, in a single year um yeah. and i i don't think that n of one sinks or swims based on the music but it's certainly i think it's i think it's an interesting score and a, and a, and it's never it's never bothersome and it's sometimes really really helpful yeah Often I've found that uh, Matthew Mao, who's our executive producer and also our editor, had a had a very mm -hmm. wonderful intuition about what was emotionally right in any particular moment. And um, he and I would have these uh, late night discussions. All right, what is this really? What are we really feeling here? And he was, he would, so he helped me sort of go off and get, elicit from our composers the right the right music so we were well into editing when music was created i um another note that i i made a couple of notes throughout uh about howard yeah and about the different side you know he i think that i think that characters whether they're fictional or not in film yeah. i think that they're like the most indelible ones are sort of the ones that like ha you know have like a sort of a single defining characteristic. And I think a Howard comes off as like, you know, as Howard, but I do, I do find, a, I, I found a couple of things that, that are dropped in there. There's a couple of moments that hint at a, at a, at a sort of more playful, not that he doesn't come off as playful throughout, but, but, but even a more playful and a, and a sort of more overt sense of humor. There's this thing he says, he's talking about, a long conversation that I think he had with with Slavin, where he, and he calls it a tolerance induction festivity, I <laughs> um, and I thought that was a very funny sort yeah. of uh, description yeah. of their conversation. And then on the on the other end of Howard, I was sort of fascinated. I, I, even the first time, I was fascinated by that suitcase full of things that he brings to India. All the all the food items that he. Yeah. That he brings and 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 who he has them earmarked yeah, for in his head. Jake like, food, is, <laughs> right? But I also, but I think maybe one of the mo more interesting things that, uh, that Howard says that sort of hints at 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 a, at a side of him that maybe isn't as um, maybe curious and uh, uh, investigative and sort of interest. He says, "I don't know much about women, but I know they like chocolate," and it seems like a very kind Awkward. of it's like. Yeah, awkward and sort of reductive and like, hey, you know, I, I have all the time in the world to read all these medical journals and things, but I haven't really explored the opposite sex or right. really come up with anything or even realized that maybe, you know, maybe defining women as, yeah. as all liking chocolate is, <laughs> is a little goofy. Um, but I appreciate that you, we get those that we get those different sides of him sort of around the edges of the film. Yeah, he is uh, very charming and witty and funny, um, mm -hmm. but but he doesn't quite have a sense of himself that way. Um, right. In fact, for initially he he 
was overtly introducing himself to me in the early days of getting to know each other as someone who was on the the autism spectrum. And, sure. and I was going to ask, yeah. And I think maybe a little, um, but not nearly as much as he suggests. And um, he, and yet he 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 does have. He is a bit retiring. Here here's an anecdote. I hope it's okay that I share this. You know, he was in oh, he was in, he okay. was in a yeshiva for mm. much of his his youth. He's in a yeshiva for all male yeshiva for I don't know fifteen years. I think it's very cloistered and. Um, you know, leaves him a little awkward in the secular world. Um, but he's, you know, he's so brilliant and funny and charming that if he would sort of have the uh, the, the ability to be more self-aware, he'd be able to observe how well he's appreciated, how well, how comfortable how comfortable he makes everyone else feel, actually. I, I also think you really hit the jackpot. And of course it's not it's not something that you planned yeah. or, or but 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 having uh Slavin in this film yeah. uh he's such a he's he's sneakily like a, a scene stealer but also so so full of great quotes yeah. and great observations and great knowledge about the medical profession that when he talks about transplant surgeons only being interested in one year survival rates, that, it's uh, you know, was what sort of like shocking. a, like a real moment for me, shocking. And also like, Oh, right. Of course. Sure. That yeah. I get that makes, that makes sense, but boy, what a mess, what a disaster. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, how compartmentalized everybody yeah. is and how they're only, focused on their one specialty and their rates of success instead of the patient's real outlooks for the future. And I also love uh, when he's talking about these conventions that are held, that are supposedly about medical innovation. And he talks about auditoriums that are full like ants, which I just think is such a great image. And so, I mean, I, you must have just been beside yourself at times with like, oh, I, I got this on film and I got this recorded. This is great. Well, Shimon Slavin was my doctor and and ah. he is he has a terrible bedside manner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. And so he and he's very full of himself and he's very mm-hmm. um, pugnacious and he has a he has a, you know, uh, wild man uh, rep in the you know oncology world, um, but he he also happens to be this guy who pioneered cell therapy at Stanford um, and is very well respected uh, by his more familiar peers. So, for example, Fuchs thinks of him very highly, and he's maybe the most world-renowned bone marrow transplant specialist. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, there's, there's a cost to being a maverick. There's a, there's a, there's a, or, or shall I say, you, 
when you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet, he's breaking an egg every day, every day, every day. <laughs> yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about Alphonse Roy, yeah. uh, the cinematographer, and about what the shooting was like. And was he, I, this, this film, you know, it, it looks great. I mean, yeah. There's nothing that you're like, oh, I wish that they had held the camera more steady yeah. or anything like that. Uh, but it also, because of because of the intimacy of what you've captured, yeah. I, I, it's hard to convince myself that there was an actual film crew involved, that it wasn't just you with like a prosumer camera just sort of hanging right. out and capturing all this stuff yourself. But talk about what it, what the production team was like. Well, talk about Lucky. It was a, it was a, it was Alphonse. His longtime sound guy and his wife, who was uh, like a, a production manager fixer, somebody who, you know, totally knew the lay of the land and could, you know, open doors and helped us with everything um, beyond the cinematography itself. So here's the way that I became unbelievably lucky to find him without knowing it. Turns out, Alphonse, who was referred by a friend of a friend, he is world-renowned cinematographer for, of, of tigers in the wild. So, so this is a guy who knows how, who he's the perfect guy for this situation where he he his intimacy with the equipment to be able to turn on a dime and to um, get right into complicated physical spaces and um, run around quickly just to get a, a fortuitous and serendipitous moment um, made all the difference in the world. Yeah. And he was he was he's a widely known in India. He's widely known to you know the BBC and. Uh, Discovery Channel and uh, European television as the nature cinematographer of India. And but was he also with you in the States for all the footage that you shot no, here? No, he wasn't. He wasn't. And in fact, I had uh, been advised that it would be smart to have the same cinematographer everywhere. And that's really what a, a good professional would do. But I ended up not doing that. A lot of the film had to be shot piecemeal in many, many different locations on a budget. So I would pull local people in. Um, you know, in Alabama, we shot with uh, a couple of uh, accomplished news cinematographers and small crew from CNN, you know, also in Baltimore, D.C., you know, news bureau people. Huh. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it it doesn't, you know, I never got the sense of like, oh, this stuff looks different than this stuff. And yeah. what happened here? This is a whole different kind of film. And no, nothing like that. It holds together. Thank you. I mean, I just, I mean, you know, I could just sit here forever and just rave about the film, <laughs> which I think is Bad. magical and, and, and beautiful and so, so smartly crafted i mean just I, I can't imagine how this story could be told any other way and i also can't imagine how hard it must have been to tell this story to be involved in this story and to find 
what feels like the perfect way to tell it. Um, and it's devastating, Thank you. Thank you, um, but it's also it's also hopeful. I I here's here's something I thought of today, yeah. and this is a little more just sort of like surface, but it feels to me like this film works like Howard does in form and function, hmm. in that it makes this complex issue easy to understand, mm-hmm. and it makes the scary somehow less scary. Hmm. And when things don't go the way that you hoped they would. Yeah. Uh, you're devastated, but you can't be mad at Howard and you can't be mad at the film. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's my, that's my takeaway for today of, of the magic of N of one. Thank you, Ben. Uh, there, there were, there were a lot of lucky surprises for sure. I mean, how, how could I have gotten so lucky for Jacob to marry his nurse? Um, or, yeah. or for Howard to like pick himself off the ground and you know get this innovative idea of his own into of all places Johns Hopkins, um, yeah, you know, and then the access and the courage that uh, Dr. Rella offered us, which was, you know, he did not have to do that, and you know his patient died, and he was. He had, with all humility, just says, you know, it pains me. I don't really know what I, what to do, you know. And that's just, just great luck. A lot. But, you know, maybe, you know, it has something to do with the, 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 the journey of the ideas themselves, you know, needing, needing to come to fruition. I, I know filmmakers and particularly most of the time documentary filmmakers have to spend a long time making their films and living with their films yeah. and getting their films out there. But it really feels to me like you've been on this project for a long time. Yeah. And it seems like a really intense, emotionally draining project to be involved with for as long as you've been involved yeah. with it. And especially now in the last year or two of trying to get this thing uh, out there yeah, seeing yeah. in the, in, in these crazy COVID times, yeah. where are you now with this film and where is this film on its journey? As far as you can tell, uh, I took this year to create some good marketing assets for it, a good poster and a good website and a good, um, a trailer. Um, it was, it was actually very difficult the, the way concurrent, Currently, there's a lot of thinking that you um, build word of mouth around something by developing small communities of interest and kind of aggregating mm-hmm. all of the positive data from the, that you know long effort, and then walk it into a distributor or a or you know now truthfully like a streaming service and. Uh, sure. It was almost impossible to do that in this last year. So the film, um, not quite languished, but it's, you know, as we've been working away on it, we're really ready to bring it into the world. We're so hungry for people, more people to see it. Mm-hmm. And now we're, now we're in this, um, you know, rushed, intense attempt to, to, to share it more widely. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I've, I've felt this way about it since April of 2019 when I first yeah. saw it. All I wanted to do was share it with everyone that I Thank knew you. and get 
and and to be able to talk about it. It's the kind of film that you see and then you just Thank want you. to. You can't get it out of your head. And the people that I know who have seen it a year ago when they were watching it for the 2020 festival yeah. and, and and even before then, uh, every time I see them uh, or talk to them, this film will come up. Hey, what's up with Anna Ron? I mean, and so... Um, I'm, I'm so beyond belief thrilled that we're finally yeah. going to get to share it with Thank the you. Wisconsin film festival audience. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm super excited to start hearing from other people who, who get to see this. And I, can, can, can I, I just say and interrupt you, um, brashly that, um, we are so grateful to the Wisconsin film festival for a- appreciating our, our work because, you know, it's a it's a one hundred percent independent film, and th- there really is only the path of other people championing it to catalyze more people seeing it, and and we're really grateful, really really grateful about this. Well, it's 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 my pleasure, and it also sort of feels like my duty. It's the kind of film you you see, and you're like, I need to be a mouthpiece for this thing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and, and Bernard, it's been great to, to get to finally talk to you, you for an extended period of time about this. We've been talking on and off yeah. for uh, two years, yeah. it feels yeah. like. Um, but it's great to finally see you. And um, yeah. Same best of luck with, uh, with the next phase of, of getting N of One uh, out there. And um, okay. And then I can't wait to see what you do next. <laughs> That's lovely. Thank you. Me too. <laughs>